That's page uh, 967, 967 in the Church Bibles, and 1503 uh, if you're in the large print Bible. Matthew chapter 4. Well, I don't know how uh, you feel uh, about tests or exams. Now, some people love uh, to be tested on something. Uh, they thrive in that, that pressure of the, uh, that kind of environment. Now, other people uh, can be really good uh, at the, the subject they're being tested at, but when it comes to being asked questions, uh, they totally crumble uh, under the, the, the conditions of a test or an exam. Sometimes, uh, if we were to take a test, it has no impact on our life at all. Maybe you go uh, to a quiz or something like that, and there's no real impact. But some tests uh, do have a great impact. So, for example, perhaps a driving test. If you pass your driving test, uh, you can drive uh, for the rest of your life. Some tests are really important. Uh, So, for example, uh, I had to take a test to qualify as a first aider. Uh, And I remember uh, taking those uh, tests. I knew everything in my head. But when I was faced with that dummy on the floor and had to do all of the the different activities on the dummy, I didn't quite crumble, but I was really nervous. I did pass, uh, but it it, it wasn't a great exam for me. But it's important, isn't it, that if someone is a medical person, for example, that they can prove that they can do the job. Who wants to be treated by a doctor who has never done a test in their life? Nobody. Nobody. I want to know that the the bus driver that is driving my children to school has passed a test that can prove they can drive the bus. It's important, isn't it, that people like teachers, uh, lawyers, doctors, pilots, uh, all sorts of different professions have been tested so that they can prove they can do the job. I don't want to get in a plane with a pilot that has never flown before. If you want to join a music group, you need to prove you can play an instrument. In fact, when I was in IT, we had to test software. You, you get the point. Things need to be tested to prove that they work or prove someone can do what they say they can do. That's exactly what's going on in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has just been declared to be God the Son with whom the Father is well pleased. We looked at that in the baptism. This is the one who will save his people from their sins. And if you remember back in Matthew chapter 1, we uh, talked about the fact that the qualification for somebody to be the saviour of humanity, to save them from sin, is absolute purity. Absolute purity. Now this is important. They have to be a human for a start. Only a human being can be a substitute for humanity. But if a human being is sinful, then they have to bear the punishment for their own sin. And because sin's punishment is eternal, you can't bear someone else's eternal punishment as well as your own. There's only one eternity. So the saviour, the the man who would be the saviour of the world, must be absolute purity. He must have absolute purity. And so tonight, after Jesus has been declared... This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So in other words, I'm absolutely pleased with Jesus. He's absolutely pure. God can't be well pleased with a sinner. 
He's declared Jesus to be pure. Here he is, straight away in the wilderness, to be tested. An exam, if you like, to prove his purity. To show that he is qualified to be well-pleasing to God. So in the the context, we have chapter 3, we have the baptism. The Spirit anoints. The Father declares Jesus as Son. There's been the the start here of something new. If you remember last week, uh, we said that it was a bit like creation, where the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, and then there was creation in Genesis 1 and 2. And we see here something new, a new creation. But what happened after Genesis 1 and 2? There was Genesis 3. There was testing in the garden. And here again, when something new is beginning with Jesus... There is testing, not in the the paradise of the garden, but in the loneliness of the wilderness. And in that place, we see when Jesus was hungry. Will Jesus Christ succeed in the wilderness where Adam failed in the garden? Well, let's look. You'll see the answer as we read Matthew uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And angels came and attended him. This is God's word. Well, this passage begins with the word then. Then, which is right away, right after what's happened before with the baptism. In the Gospel of Mark, he uses the word immediately. And Jesus was then led by the Holy Spirit, which he's just been anointed with, into the wilderness... Why? To be tempted by the devil. Well, that seems strange, doesn't it? When you read that for the first time, I mean, we pray, lead us not into temptation, and here is the Holy Spirit of God leading the Son of God to be tempted by the devil himself. But the word for temptation here can also mean test. And both cases are true here. For the purposes of God... Jesus Christ is going in the wilderness to be tested. But for the purposes of the devil, he's going to the wilderness to be tempted to sin. 
And the word can mean both, then it's good that we examine uh, both aspects. So first of all, we see the testing from God. The testing from God. So the Father, through the Spirit, sends Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. Now this should not seem strange. God doesn't tempt anybody to sin, but he does test his people. He tests his people to prove them. Jesus is well-pleasing to God. Jesus is proved here. He's tested. We all face tests as God's children, don't we? Financial tests, perhaps. Relationship tests. Health tests. All sorts of things that God allows to come into our lives to test us and to prove us. And to help us realize where our dependence lies upon God. It's like, uh, I've used this illustration I think before, but it's like a, a tea bag. If you uh, put cold water on a, on a tea bag, uh, you get the color, the, the color changes in the water, but it's, it's not really, doesn't change all that much and you get this horrible uh, froth on the top of the cup. But when you put boiling water onto the tea bag, well then the color comes out, doesn't it? And you get the, the flavor of the tea. And that's kind of what's going on here. God tests us he, he, he puts that, that heat on us that we would, our true colour would show. And Jesus is tested to prove his loyalty to the Father's will. And that's done in the wilderness. Why in the wilderness? Because God's son Jesus is tested in the same place as God's son Israel. We saw that when we read Deuteronomy chapter 8. They were took, taken through the wilderness. We saw that uh, uh, over the last couple of weeks in Hebrews. We've seen that they've been in the wilderness uh, for 40 years in the wilderness, being tested by God, failing over and over, but being tested by God. And God's son Jesus here goes where Israel went. And Israel failed. And all of the, t- the, the quotations Jesus uses here in Matthew chapter 4 are all from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and chapter 8. Times in the wilderness, where Israel was there, being tested by God. Forty days and forty nights he was fasting. Why? Partly uh, we can look back at Moses and Elijah, the two great prophets were tested and and fasted for uh, the same amount of time. But it's really here Israel, forty years, and they failed in the wilderness. So Adam failed in the garden. Israel fails in the wilderness. Will Jesus Christ fail? as well. Now hopefully we know the answer to this question, don't we? We've just read the passage. But before we look at the temptations themselves, it's worth answering this question. Could he have failed? Now we've had good discussions on this in our home group. Uh, Could Jesus Christ have failed? Could he have fallen here? Could he have uh, sinned? Well the answer is no. No, he could not sin because... Jesus Christ is fully God. And as God, God cannot sin. And so the next question then is, well, was it a real temptation then? How could it be a a real temptation if Jesus couldn't sin anyway? It was a real temptation. Why? Because he's fully man. And as man, he feels the full force of this temptation. Now, it is a mystery. It is beyond our full comprehension. But both these things are true. He could not sin. But yet at the same time, he felt the full force of the temptation. 
And the only way we know how forceful temptation really is, is when we allow it to run to the very end and we don't fall. The easy thing to do, isn't it, is to fall into sin. The difficult thing is to overcome. Uh, One illustration which uh, might be helpful uh, just to picture this in your mind of what what was going on is that if you had a, a pure piece of metal and you heated the metal up and it melted... It would feel the heat but wouldn't lose the purity. And that's what kind of what's going on with Jesus. He could not sin, but he feels the full force of this temptation. And so when we sung, he stands where I, he walked where I walk. And he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. It is absolutely true. And so in verses 1 and 2, Jesus Christ is tested by God. And the key phrase... To understand, I think, this whole passage is at the end of verse 2. He was hungry. He was hungry. Literally, he was starving. And when Jesus Christ was in a, a state of complete weakness, in this state, we see the temptation from the devil. The temptation from the devil. Now, it might sound obvious he was hungry. I mean, he's fasted for 40 days and you might think, well, I get hungry after 40 minutes. It might say, why is, why is Matthew saying that? He's, he's hungry. Of course he's hungry. Well, it's more than, just, more than just physical hunger going on here. Like in Hebrews this morning, rest is more than, than sleeping and having a day off. Here, hunger is more than just the physical uh, desire for food. It is that, but it's more than that. And it's the hunger here that Satan goes with. It's the hunger that that Satan uses to tempt Jesus. And in fact, the first first temptation is obvious, but in all three temptations, it's the hunger. It's the hunger. He was hungry. And Satan uses that. And we'll see how as we go through the temptations. But in some way, this, this hunger is used by Satan to tempt Jesus. And the temptations... Uh, that Jesus faces all have different aspects, but it all boils down to this. Are you going to be loyal to the Father? It tests the relationship between Jesus and his Father. You see, Jesus isn't tempted here uh, about who he is. When Satan says, if you are the Son of God, he's not, he's not tempting Jesus to, to doubt whether he really is. He knows he is. Uh, a different and better translation might be, since you are the Son of God. Since you are the Son of God. And all the temptations come down to this. Am I willing for my father to satisfy my hunger? Or will I do things my own way? Because since I'm the son of God, I can do anything, yeah? But am I going to let my father satisfy me? That's the key. Am I willing for my father to satisfy my hunger? Or will I do things my own way? That's temptation, isn't it? Every temptation we can say can come down to that. Can I trust God... To satisfy my needs, or will I go my own way? And so, with this hunger, we see the three temptations. And the first one we look at is in verse 3. The tempter uh, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And this is really the first temptation Jesus, you're hungry, give yourself what you want. Jesus, you're hungry. Give yourself what you want. Now, Jesus Christ, as a man, 
voluntarily abandoned using his power except for his father's will. We read, don't we, I have come to do the will of the father. When you read of his miracles, his miracles are for other people's benefit, not purely for his own. Jesus, uh, the, the, the son of God, you know, God, he thirsts, he hungers, he sleeps, he weeps, all aspects of humanity, yet never uses miracles for himself to overcome those things. And this temptation here was to use his power apart from the Father's will. And Christ is called to live as a man, completely dependent upon his Father. Like Israel were called to do in the wilderness. They were called to live in dependence upon God. And in the wilderness, God provided for Israel manna, bread from heaven, miracle bread. And Satan's saying here, well, you're the son of God and you deserve some of this miracle bread, Jesus. Provide for yourself like Israel. Israel had this bread. You have this bread. Give in to the craving. You're hungry, Jesus. You're hungry. Give yourself what you want. Do you ever hear that? I hear that sometimes. Don't we suffer the same temptations to provide for our cravings, our physical cravings, at the expense of God's will? Physical desires. I deserve this. Everyone else is doing it. Not thinking if, is this what God wants me to have? You know, an obvious one is, is sexual sin, isn't it? Sexual temptation. I want this. I deserve this. Everybody else is doing this. Not thinking, does God want this? Does God want this? It's tempting to, to click that button or go to that place and think, well, that's what I'm hungering for. I'm hungry for this. And Satan says, give yourself what you want. You deserve it. Or perhaps we uh, are hungry for material things and we, we, we satisfy, try and satisfy ourselves with stuff, 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 stuff. We look at the glossy uh, magazines and say, oh, look, I'm hungry for this. This is what I want. And Satan says, you deserve it. Go on, just put it on the credit card. Don't worry about it. Or even with food itself. You know, in our society where we really have so much food, we can gorge ourselves on food not even thinking about what we're eating, not being thankful for how God's provided. And Satan's saying, but you're hungry. You want this. You, de- you deserve this. And when we give in to our physical desires, this is what we're telling God. God, you're not enough. You haven't given me enough. I want more. Well, how did Jesus respond? He looks back to Israel's testing in the wilderness And how they were tempted in exactly the same way. And in verse 4, he says, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, where it talks about God allowing Israel to hunger so that they would realize their dependence on him. He didn't make them hunger so that they would not trust him and go after things themselves. He made them hunger so that they could trust in him. Because for them, there wasn't bread anywhere else. It wasn't buried in the sand somewhere. It, was, it had to come from God. So they hungered so that they could depend on him. They hungered to, 
and, and they realized, or they should have realized, that there are better things in life than food. Friends, that, that, that's a message in our, our culture we need to hear, isn't it? There are better things in life even than food. God is better than food. We need food, yes, but we need God more. Obedience to the Father is better than bread. And for us, obedience to the Father is better and more satisfying than giving in to our cravings. But the only way we know that is if we go beyond our cravings, get to the end of that temptation, and we realize Jesus is so much more greater and satisfying. He's our treasure, right? But it's so much easier to say, oh, I'll, just, I'll, I'll give in to the craving. Jesus didn't do that. He realized, no, I have so much more with my Father. I don't live on bread alone. I, I, I depend on God. Well, then we come to the second temptation. Look at verses 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Now, the second temptation is is this. Jesus, you're hungry. Does God really love you? Does God really love you? Why would God allow you to feel like this, Jesus? So Satan, he takes him up to the the highest point in the temple. It's it's probably a, a vision hundreds of feet up in the air, and he, and he asks Jesus, he says, throw yourself down. And he even uses the Bible, badly, but he uses the Bible. And he quotes from Psalm 91. Now Psalm uh, 91 uh, begins like this. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And this psalm is written, therefore, to those who dwell with God. And it describes in the psalm uh, some of the hazards that God's people should expect. And God promises that those that are in his shelter are protected from those hazards. And here, Satan is saying to Jesus, well, why don't you like, leave that shelter and, and go and jump off the temple so that you know that God will, would put you back in? It's kind of what's going on. What this psalm doesn't say is people should seek danger to prove God loves them. It says, no, when you're in the shelter, you are protected. You don't need to leave. And the big temptation here is to force the Father to show his love when Jesus was hungry and not feeling loved. Because when we're feeling that that hunger, and perhaps... You're feeling like you are missing something. It can be tempting to feel like God doesn't love you. And so we might be tempted to do something stupid. Make rash decisions to prove God's love. We might place ourselves somewhere where we know we're going to struggle with sin. Just to show that God is with me so I can overcome that. Rather than avoiding it. We can be reckless perhaps with our money and say well God will provide for me anyway. We can make foolish decisions when we doubt the love of God. But when we're hungry, we need to trust God's word, not doubt God's love. When we're hungry, we need to trust God's word, not doubt God's love. 
You know, if, you, if Jesus jumps off, and you, if you jump off, if you decide, no, I'm, I'm going to prove God loves me, and do something ridiculous, God may not catch you. He may let you fall, do damage, and then learn the lesson. It's better, isn't it, to stay in the shelter of the Most High. And Jesus resisted from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16. He said, it is also written, in other words, Satan, you can't quote scripture at me. Scripture doesn't contradict scripture. And it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Israel didn't trust God. Israel questioned if God was with them because they were hungry. They'd just seen all of these miracles in Egypt. They'd seen the Red Sea open up. They walked through it. They sang a great song of deliverance. And then in the next chapter of Exodus, it says, but we're hungry. Is God really with us? Why did we leave Egypt? They didn't trust God. They questioned him. They tested him. And the highest form of trust is obedience, not recklessness. True faith does not need God to prove his love. It recognizes what he's already done to show his love. For Israel, God had proved his love, hadn't he, in the Exodus. He'd shown them he loves them. For Jesus, God had shown he loves him at his baptism when he gives him the the Holy Spirit and announces his love. And for us, we look back, if you want to know if God loves you, you look at the cross, don't you? You don't look at my my current circumstances and how, how horrible they might be. You look at the cross and you say, yes, God loves me. Well, in the final temptation, Satan reveals himself for who he really is. One who wants our worship instead of God. Look at at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. That's the, the final temptation is Jesus, you're hungry, but there's an easier way. There's an easier way. You see, Jesus Christ is the the king of the kingdom. He has come to bless all people. And Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor. And he offers it to Jesus right now. So there'll be no cross, no disciples that let him down. No weeping, no hungering, no thirsting, no hard obedience to the Father, no uh, cup of wrath to drink. Have it all now, Jesus. Reign now. Don't do all of the, 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 the hard stuff. There's an easier way. I'll give it you now. You can reign now if you worship me. If you worship me. Now, worship here uh, is it, paying homage. It's saying to Satan, I acknowledge uh, who you are and I will do what you want me to do. And notice here how Satan shows Jesus all the splendor of the world, but none of the sin. All the splendor, none of the sin. Because sin is the problem Jesus came to deal with. Yes, Jesus will rule and he will reign over all the splendor, but he has come to deal with sin. And Satan was saying to Jesus, you can, you can rule, you can bless people, you can heal people, you can do all sorts of things, but you've got to worship me. And, you, and if you do that, you can have it now. But sin needs sacrifice. And he was the sacrifice. He goes to the cross. 
And Satan was tempting him to avoid all of that. And how, how we're tempted with this, aren't we? Christian, there, must, there is an easier way to satisfy our hunger than, than obedience, Satan tells us. Obeying God's word, it, it's difficult. It's boring. No one else is doing it. It's hard. And you're hungry. It feels like God's asking us to, to make a meal from scratch when the takeaway menu's right there. It's just so much easier. And Satan also shows us all of sin's splendor. Look how good it looks. But he never shows us the consequences that come from sin. And he says to us, you can have all of this. This is, this is yours if you worship me. And the easy thing to do is to say, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. That looks really good. I'll do that. That's the easy thing. The hard thing is to say what Jesus did. Away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus did not give in. He allowed the temptation to go all the way. And he he resisted it and told Satan to go away. You know, Deuteronomy 6 is where this quote in verse 10 is from. And that chapter contains the great commandment. Worship the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Our worship needs to be to God alone. Not to Satan, not to self, not to anything. God, God alone. In other words, in all of these temptations, we see Jesus say, God first. God is my number one. God first. Rather than taking the easy way, he dedicates himself to the will of the Father and worships him alone. And Satan is sent packing. And the temptations end for now. And in the end, in verse 11, we see the triumph of the Son. There's an exchange here in verse 11. Uh, The devil left him. And in his place, the angels came and attended him. Satan leaves, the angels arrive. And almost all commentators agree that these angels here fed Jesus both physically and spiritually. And this is the point that we need to get here with with temptation. Jesus' hunger was truly satisfied when he said no to Satan. Jesus' hunger was truly satisfied when he said no to Satan. So he said no to physical bread being provided in sinful ways. He said no to those physical cravings. And now he receives it from his father. He says no to testing God's love by angels catching him. And here we see the angels attending him. He says no I'm not going to take a shortcut to God's kingdom. And as we come uh, to verse 22, Jesus starts proclaiming the kingdom. Uh, uh, Verse 23 and onwards, he's proclaiming the kingdom. He says, no, Satan, no, no, no. And he, uh, he keeps saying no, and God provides and provides and provides. His hunger was truly satisfied when he said no to Satan. Because when he says no to Satan, God comes and provides all he needs. True satisfaction 
true rest. You see, Satan offers Jesus satisfaction from his hunger. He says, take this, eat, and you'll, you'll, have, you'll be satisfied. But he never would have been satisfied. And neither will we when we say yes to Satan. It never satisfies. It looks good. It never satisfies. But God provided satisfaction for Jesus when he waited on God, when he waited on him. It's always, always, always worth saying no to Satan and yes to Jesus. And if you think what Satan offers you looks good, just wait. Say no. And look what God will give you. It's like when, um, when I was younger, I'd, I'd always be hungry when I, when I got in. And especially on a Sunday, I'd get home from church and my mum would cook a roast for about four o'clock in the afternoon, which isn't a great time because you have to wait for ages, right? And I was always tempted, oh, I'll just nibble this, nibble this, nibble this. My mum would always say, but you'll spoil your dinner. And she was right. Jesus is offering us an amazing feast. But we've got to say, no, Satan, no, no, no. Adam failed in the garden. Israel fails in the wilderness. Will Jesus fail too? No. He triumphs where they fail and he passes the test. So as we conclude, let me uh, just say this. What, what does this mean for us? Because it's all been you know, very nice, very good. What does this mean for us? Well, first of all, we have a saviour who understands us, who's been tempted in every way that we have, yet is without sin. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. He understands. He has been there. He knows how hard it is. You know, sometimes we might say, well, how can Jesus possibly know how hard it is for me? Because Jesus, took t- he was tempted all the way and, and overcame. He never gave in. We might more rightly say, how can we ever, ever understand how he did that, how he felt? And it's good to know that God understands us. He sympathizes with us. He knows what it's like. And when he asks us to resist temptation, he's not asking us to do something that we can turn around and say, well, how would you know what it's like? He would say, I know exactly what it's like because I was there in the wilderness. Secondly, Jesus Christ is our pattern in how to overcome temptation. He's our pattern for how to overcome temptation. The word of God was in his heart. Uh, He didn't uh, didn't just say uh, no and try really hard not to do it. The word of God was in his heart. What he, he, he said from the scriptures was not just something he'd done in scripture memory class. This was in his heart. He knew God's word in his heart, not just in his head. He, and he, therefore he knew, and this is the key, he knew that when Satan offered him something, what was already in his heart was far, far, far superior to what Satan was offering him. He already had something better. And for us, we need to, yes, know God's word in our heads, but it needs to 
go into our hearts. And it takes a journey, doesn't it? It goes from our heads, where we know it, to our hearts, where we love it, and our hands, where we do it. It it takes that journey. But if it just remains in your head, you just read the Bible and forget about it. No, take time. Meditate on it. Take the time. Love it. Do it. Have it in your heart that when temptations come, you don't just have to memorize. I mean, do, please memorize scripture, but don't think this is Jesus just spouting off verses. This is from the heart. It's more than just memorizing. It goes deep. It's wonderful to have a saviour who understands. It's wonderful to have a saviour who is our pattern. But the real point of this temptation goes deeper still. Yes, he understands. Yes, he's our pattern. But the point is this. We have a saviour who is our victor. We have a saviour who is our victor. In showing that he is sinless, he shows that he is qualified to be our saviour. And the Bible teaches us that his victory is now our victory. His victory is our victory. He's not just an example for us. He is that, but it's more than that. His victory is our victory. Jesus, the perfect man, on the cross takes the place of sinful humanity and bears their sin. And uh, this wonderful verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, God made him who had no sin, we see it here, no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This victory that Jesus Christ has in the wilderness is credited to us as his people. He swaps places. He knew no sin, but he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, isn't that just the most amazing truth? When we see Jesus in the wilderness, we could look at it and think, but I fail all the time. And Jesus says, yes, you do, but I don't. My victory is your victory. In the baptism, he stands where we stand and he points to the cross what what he's going to do. In the wilderness, he goes where we go, where we hunger, where we fail, where we're tempted, and he's victorious for us. And so his sacrifice on the cross is enough to pay for our sin because he's sinless. And then when we ask him for forgiveness, he gives us his Holy Spirit, the one that anointed him, anoints us and gives us all that we need to overcome temptation ourselves. And so then we are, we are in the most marvelous situation imaginable. We have all that we need to overcome temptation. So there's nothing that God allows us to be tempted with that we cannot overcome. Yes, we need discipline. We need the, the scripture in our heart. We need to follow the pattern of Christ. But we have the Holy Spirit. We can overcome But wonderfully, sometimes we fail, don't we? Sometimes we fail, but we keep looking back to Jesus. And that's where we have the wonderful words in 1 John chapter 2. If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. This is him in the wilderness, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Isn't that amazing? I have all I need to overcome. And when I fail, I look at Jesus and I realize it's all forgiven. 
And I want to finish with this thought. After Jesus was victorious, uh, angels attended him. Angels, uh, they provided for his needs. God provided for him. He was absolutely satisfied in his God, in his Father. And one day, when this sinful life is over, we are going to be attended by God forever. Forever. Never hungering ever again. Because we'll be with him forever and ever. And I want to just finish with this final thought, which I pray will help you when you're tempted next time. How can we ever think that Satan can offer us anything greater than what we already have in Jesus? How can we think that Satan can offer us anything greater than what we already have in Jesus? We have the greatest gift imaginable. Truly good news. Let's not say yes to something that is just doesn't even compare to the wonderful things we have in Christ already. Praise God. <laughs> Let's uh, close uh, with singing uh, our final song. Uh, we're going to sing Victor's Crown, uh, talking about Jesus being uh, the one who is victorious for us. Let's stand as we close.